hear, feel, think, and listen to today's episode of A Grand Line Reborn, a One Piece slash Final Fantasy fourteen podcast brought to you by Third Impact Anime. We are here today in the first episode of 2023 to deliver on a promise we made last year. A discussion of the episode of East Blue compilation movie, the Noclip FF14 documentary, and also the wrap-up of the Alabasta Saga. I'm Tobias, and with me is my first mate, Bill. Yeah, hello, everybody. Glad to be back. All right, so I figure we can go ahead and just go in order here. So on the last episode, we talked about wanting to do this for a bit. Rather than just discuss these series you know, directly, we're also going to go and do some of the materials around them as well. So the first thing you had me watch was the episode of East Blue movie. Mm-hmm. And I believe the, the reasoning you had for this was that since I'm not watching the anime, you wanted me to experience some of what the anime had to offer, right? Correct, because anime is not a one-to-one translation of the manga. They can be as faithful as they can be, but there's always going to be some slight differences and some slight strengths and weaknesses that the anime uh, provides uh, compared to the manga original source. And uh, what what particular strengths and weaknesses did you think the the anime has in comparison to the manga? For me, I think just certain things that just the manga can't do because of the medium. Like, I love the One Piece soundtrack, especially because they can really do a great job of heightening moments. For example, because it's in my it's in my mind, uh, the initial outset of the Arlong Park arc, when Luffy gives Nami the hat, and then he does the walk to... Uh, Arlong Park and the use of the great music in the background just gets you really excited and gets you pumped up for what we're about to see which is this confrontation or just the just I think the fantastic voice acting by the One Piece cast do a really good job of emphasizing the characters emotions such as Usopp's struggle to defend a uh, someone he loves and trying to stop Captain Kuro and him feeling the pain of all of him getting hurt or the the just exhaust that Nami feels stabbing the Arlong pirate's tattoo and just the, the exhaustion you can just hear in her voice of just having to deal with Arlong and his crap <laughs> for uh for years and it just finally coming to a pa- coming to pass where she just can't deal with it anymore she can't compartmentalize it which is something that a really good panel can do but i think voice acting and music really help emphasize those moments oh yeah absolutely Com- completely agree with that point it's uh it's one thing just to see it laid out but there is something that is added in audio and i think that scene in particular 
I mean, that, that scene is already probably the standout to Arlong anyway. Uh, probably the standout to the entire East Blue Saga. To see it, given that, that extra punch of emotion, absolutely added to that altogether. Mm. In general, I would agree also that these these voices are, are these characters. You know, I even not really following along with One Piece prior to this project. You know, that, that like, Luffy's voice... It, that's that's him. It, it works. It sort of has matched perfectly as time has gone on. And uh, though I'm not, again, while I haven't got a lot of the, the soundtracks in my experience so far, I have listened to a bit of it just to put these podcasts together. And I, I would agree that One Piece has a particular soundtrack that is iconic for what it's doing. And even we go beyond the insert songs, you know, like We Are, or the, the opening song, I should say. Uh, you mentioned that lead up to Arlong where they, you can feel this impending, this impending fight. And it does add to that excitement, for sure. I think why I love the One Piece soundtrack is it's very classic, using an or- mostly using an orchestral score for the series so it doesn't feel dated or very much of its time right for example when i tried to watch bleach last year Mm. a lot of the soundtrack for that was using hip-hop and some modern some rock music in there and i feel like that kind of dated it to the early 2000s it sounded kind of like new metal like I, I could have been listening to like Lincoln Park or uh, a Corn Limp Biscuit that type of stuff, which would have exactly. <laughs> and it's kind of uh, put me in a time and place. Whereas with the One Piece soundtrack, I I never feel like oh this is from the two thousands, this is from the nineties. It's funny you mention that because that's, that's something I've, I have thought about. We are is when I listen to that and I watch that OP, the original animation it does put me back in a place of being in the 2000s. Not not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but unlike the rest of the soundtrack that does feel kind of timeless, uh, We Are kind of has that problem as well. Yeah, I would say just the openings are very much of their, of their time, just because of the animation style that you see and uh, the artists that were then popular at the time. So I, I would say the openings are don't have the timeless feel, but they are very much of an era because the animation style, at least in the initial One Piece opening, is a harken back to more hand-drawn animation before that went away in the early 2000s and we got that digipaint era that uh, became so pervasive. Well, you said the word opening is plural. Does that mean that eventually we'll, we'll see something else instead of We Are? <laughs> oh, Tobias, how naive are you? <laughs> you mean to tell me that we're, what, a thousand episodes deep and they have used more than one opening? Yes. How even, excessive. Even, even more than two or three? <laughs> but uh, to go back to your point, I, I, you know, that's funny you mentioned that, though, because I think that's true even of today's anime. There's a certain sort of, like, musical styling of the sort of music that is popular today that is sometimes it's difficult for me to get like get used to i know uh you and i have been watching the yurusei reboot from this year 
And you know, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really love the first opening song. Mm. I thought the animation they built around it was great and kind of fun, a fun throwback to the franchise. But I just didn't like the song. And I kind of feel like, honestly, that's happening more and more nowadays, where I just don't care for the music. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I also was not a huge fan of the first opening of the Yursei Atsura reboot. It felt very much we're doing a modern song, and I just wanted to hear the classic song from the original series because that's what I think about it in my head. Uh, and to be clear, like that's probably for the better. You know, you definitely want to market your stuff to the the younger audience and not the old curmudgeons like me and Bill. <laughs> But it's something that we noticed that you know music does change, styling and anime openings have changed over the years. So it's interesting that when you look back at One Piece, that such a big series, how we are does feel a bit dated. Well, nowadays, I, I would I would say even amongst American fans, there's a much more popular opening than we are, which is the Four Kids opening. Yo! Story goes, we find out by the treasure in the grand line. There's no doubt the pirate whose eye is on it, he'll sing. I'll be king of the pirates, I'm gonna be king. His name is Luffy, that's Monkey D. Luffy, king of the pirates. He's made of rubber. Yo ho ho, he took a bite of gum gum. Just like a samurai and a L-A-D-Y Nami's not shy Usopp's doing that marksman thing Sanji's cooking Chopper's doctoring The four kids opening <laughs> Is very much of its time And I think it's funny where how a lot of things are where at first when something comes out, everyone's like, Oh, this sucks. I hate it. And now everyone's like, no, I love this song <laughs> because the, the kids that probably watch the four kids dumb are now older now. And they think that song is the best thing since sliced bread. And uh, that, that song is also of it, of its time because of the, the rapping of all the crew members and just the very aggressive nature of that song. <laughs> Yeah. Well, let's not give it up, Bill. Well, let's let's talk a little maybe about the weaknesses of this movie. Did you see? Was there? Yeah, I know that you're kind of the the expert here. Is there something about the movie that you didn't like in particular? My biggest complaint with episode of East Blue, like all compilations, is there's always going to be some loss of detail because you don't have the time to add those detail flourishes. So it's very much, we're making this compilation to help people catch up and we're also doing it as a callback to fans, but we can't go into longer detail on certain things. For example, the fights, they had to shorten them in the compilation movie because we only had two hours and we're trying to cover as much as we can. Or when we get to, um, Barity and Sanji's arc, we can't have characters like major full body be in it because he's a minor character and we're trying to cut out as much as we can because of time constraints. 
Right. So there's always going to be a there's going to be a trade off always with compilation movies where you can't have those kind of flourishes you could do in a regular anime TV series because you just don't have the time. Well, I think for me, the biggest weakness, and you're probably not going to like to hear this, Bill, but the movie really solidified my choice of reading the manga. Hmm. I think that despite the, the, the great soundtrack, uh, despite the voice acting, as good as it is, there's something about Oda's style. I don't really like translated to animation. He has a very cartoony art style in the way he draws his characters and the way that the gags happen. And the, there, there's always like Oda loves his over-exaggerated big open mouths. Whenever character is surprised or angry or feeling literally any emotion whatsoever, he draws a big old mouth on a character, which uh, is something I noticed. I, I think I'm pretty sure I commented on back in the very first episode we did. And it took me a while to get used to that. It's something that I really wasn't, I hadn't seen a whole lot of in other shonen manga. Those tend to be more serious, a little more self-serious about like the action scenes and whatnot. And One Piece is more than happy to goof on its characters uh, in a very mm. fun way. So I have gotten used to that. And I feel like when I'm looking at these panels and these gags happen, it works on a panel-to-panel basis. But when you see these people characters move around with the very simple style... I don't know. I feel like something is lost there. And ultimately it reminds me that this is a show for, for young kids, which is again, nothing wrong with that, but maybe with the manga, I was able to enjoy it more for that reason. I would kind of act with that where I would think because Oda's art style is so cartoony, you would think that would translate very well to animation because then you could do squash and stretch. You can do exaggeration and get away with it. You're not doing photorealistic characters, which are much harder to do in animation. And because everything's a bit more exaggerated in the One Piece world because of its art style, you can do a lot more with anim- in the animation form. And that may be some of my own expectations coming out. When I'm used to watching these big shonen series, it is something that you know focuses on these big old action set pieces. It seems to be more an attempt to make these characters seem cool and badass rather than goofy. And I think maybe comparing it to that, that again, mid-aughts, you talk about Bleach, you know, we talk about Naruto, comparing it to those series, this feels a little flat in a way that, I don't know, I don't, maybe I'm not, I could, I could definitely use some more thinking on this, but my gut reaction was, you know, this is okay, but I'm glad I'm reading it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to flow a little faster. I like. I think. I feel like the gags work better in a in a panel format. You know, if I was if I was a kid watching this and watching this week to week for the rest of my life, I'm sure it would be go down easier. But as someone coming into this, that was kind of that struck me about seeing the anime. Now, I, know I full will... well that the movie is in 2004. Was this? this was like 2017. They put this movie out, right? I think so. I, think, I mean, it definitely looks better than what would have been initially, of course. It is uh, in HD. It looks cleaned up. But there's still that sort of juxtaposition between this simple, flat art style with, you know, new animation techniques. 
I will say in a point to you is it is being done by Toei Animation <laughs> and a lot mm-hmm. of people are not huge fans of Toei Animation because they're notorious for being very cheap with their productions. And I will say that, yes, there are points where they can you do a lot of shortcuts and use quick tricks to get the workout faster. But in their defense, during key moments, important moments in the manga, I feel like they do put in the animation quality when it's important. But I don't expect Mm. that throughout the entire series. Like, as you go forward, what I might do is show you certain key moments from Mm. certain arcs. And then just get your reactions on those scenes. Because there's not a compilation film for every major arc. Right. As of this recording. And we may want to, um, I may want to find specific points of the soundtrack as well. Primarily, you've sent me a list of, of some songs to, to use in the podcast, for instance. And it's, it's divorced from the context. They, they sound good, but stuff like that, the one song they play in Arlong Park, you know, that is, it's tied intrinsically to that scene in particular. It, it may help me associate these songs better with that context. Well, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was, it was like you said, a good look at the the entire point was to less to review it as an individual movie because it literally is just a compilation of what we've already reviewed, but sort of a look at the anime version of One Piece. The one anchor with it is I've been watching the One Piece anime for a number of years now. And so for me... Those songs are iconic because I've heard them over and over and over and over again. So they have memories for me. And certain songs bring back strong emotional memories when I either watched a particular scene for the first time or where I was. Yeah. So I'm going to have a stronger desire for the music than probably you who are who's just experiencing it for the first time and not having to hear those songs over and over again because repetition ingrains us in a certain way. And it's it's funny you mentioned that very particular methods is on the, the flip side, I'm getting the little vignettes that are before each chapter. So you know before each every each and every chapter of One Piece there's either like he's done things like where he talks about the Kobe and Co- the Kobe pirates. Uh, there's a whole buggy mini arc right now. I've kind of, I think we wrapped up the Wapple sort of mini arc where after, you know, Wapple's defeated and on drum Island, he like gets a company. He starts a company <laughs> where they, they make stuff. It's like a Wapple factory. He starts, I think he, if I remember he becomes like a toy manufacturer. Yeah. Something like that. And, and he marries Miss Universe. <laughs> so is that something that's animated eventually as a a side story eventually i believe those side story stuff does get animated but it's not like it is in the manga where here's an episode we're done with the episode and here's a little side side bit i think those side bits are later incorporated to where the narrative is 
in the anime. Yeah, but on, on top of like the little side stories he he puts at the beginning of the chapter, there's also just art pages mm. where he just the characters. The one I just read uh, in the middle of Skypia, there's a little cute picture of Chopper trying to drink coffee with some other animal dude, and the animal dude's sophisticated. He's drinking his coffee, he's enjoying it, and Chopper's just like splitting it out because he hates how bitter it is. They're just fun little little things that don't really mean anything. But, uh, you know, you you talk about your experience with the way the anime has done things, but I feel like this is similarly a way that the manga sort of pops in his own way. I think that's great because then it allows each medium to have their own strengths and they're not just a one-to-one with each other. Because if they were a direct one-to-one, that would be pretty boring, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. And both of these are, are meant to be long-form media with, with the manga, this is something you read, you read in you know, Shonen Jump. The original audience would read these chapters on the subway or whatever their daily transit was. So you know, and on the other hand, the, the original anime would also be a, a, weekly, a weekly TV show. So mm-hmm. regardless of what method you're doing, there's something that is meant to be long form. And I feel like that hooks a specific type of people in either way. And once you're hooked in that method, that's the way you want to absorb the material. Mm. Not unlike subs versus dubs, that eternal discussion among anime fans. It's, it's really come down to, there's not really one that's superior over the other, but once you watch a show for the first time, if you watch the dub, you're going to prefer the dub. If you read the subtitles, you're going to prefer the subtitles. And we can argue all day about which is superior, but if we're being honest... You know, even myself as a uh, as an elitist sub watcher, you know, I can admit that it really comes down to the way you experience it for the first time. You're exactly right. With One Piece, because the dub is so sporadic in its production, and my friend that I watch it with is primarily a sub watcher, we watched it with uh, Japanese language. And subtitles. And so that's how I hear those characters. I don't hear the dub cast. I think the dub cast is fine in certain ways, but I much prefer the sub because that's how I first heard it. And it'd be the same way if I started with a manga and read that instead of watching the anime. I'd probably would be reading the manga instead and not watch the anime because the anime is always behind. But I started with the anime and that's how it got me into the franchise. Exactly. I I have one last point before we move on. I am a little jealous of these sort of art one-shots because I own all the One Piece color walk art books that Viz has put out at this point. And the only bits of art that get released is all the color pages or poster art or the artwork for the Tokaban covers. But we don't, okay. but we don't, but it doesn't offer kind of those kind of vignette art pieces that you're describing, like the, the scene you're describing of Chopper. I have not mm. seen that in an art book. The only art, the mm. only art I see in the art book is the color pages and poster work and covers for the books themselves. Well, I guess that's how they get you. You gotta, you gotta go buy the manga if you want it all. You gotta buy everything to get the full fans' experience, right, Bill? <laughs> <laughs> Just 
to be part of the universe proper, you have to watch this TV show, then this movie, and this radio play. You got to get it all. I mean, you can also just subscribe to Weekly Shonen Jump and go through the entire series. Just just read the first page of every chapter. <laughs> <laughs> that would that would so annoy someone if if I let them borrow my account. It's like, why are you just looking at this one page per chapter? <laughs> it says you read it all, but the progress bar only shows one little tick. Weird. <laughs> the uh, the other thing you had to mention there is that the last page of every chapter has the little question corner, the SBS. I don't remember what it stands for, but it's sort of like the Q&A section where these readers, who are mostly children, let's be honest, are writing in to ask questions about characters or the way Oda works uh, as a as an artist and I was really good on reading those for for East Blue but I kind of fell off because some of it is just kind of kids being goofy and writing in silly questions but it, it was kind of nice to see Oda take time to respond to these people even though some mostly they were jokes and he's very jokey and kind it was kind of a, a nice way to connect with the the artist. Yeah, I think that's that's great that he does that because that connects the author with their audience and kind of breaks down the barrier to some degree. Because I know there's some creators that are very much, I create the work, I put out the work, I go away. So it's nice to hear that he's engaged with the audience of One Piece. And he also, in the color, in the color walks... He also puts in kind of little blurbs describing what he thought of his thought process when he's drawing either a particular piece or just a random jokey thought. So that's also in the color walks as well. You know, at first I thought that it was just because I tend to read the the full volumes that maybe that was something that was not included. But even reading more stuff on Shonen Jump, I'm not seeing anything similar to that on any other any other manga series. It seems something that... I'm sure One Piece isn't the only one that's ever done it, of course, but it it has given me a greater connection to Oda more so than any other work and their artist. I don't get that from really anywhere else. further thoughts on episode of east blue no just i'm glad you watched it uh you have another compilation movie to watch the which is funny you have alabasta to watch there is an alabasta compilation movie so that will be our next one piece animated adventure 
whenever we get to that. Yeah, I think maybe giving some myself some more time away from the movies and the anime maybe will give me more time to appreciate it as well. Come with that with a fresh perspective. But before we get into the discussion of the uh, Alabasta manga arc, let's talk about this documentary. So uh, I had you watch... So for those of you in the audience not aware, Noclip is a YouTube channel that has done a few documentaries about various video game properties. They seem like they are more than just a bunch of YouTube schmucks. They actually have production values, and they have spent money on going out and finding sources for their documentaries to tell an interesting story. And uh, honestly, I have not heard of them before hearing about the FF14 documentary, which a lot of people in the community had told me to watch. Bill, do you have any experience with Noclip or any any of their other stuff? I had heard about them on the periphery. They've done documentaries on uh, popular franchises like Horizon Zero Dawn, mm. where they've been able to interview... Uh, video game developers from particular games and ask them about the process of making their their games and they've done a wide spectrum of documentaries uh, primarily on western studios yeah and i want to say this one was a little special because they did fly out to japan and interviewed several people working at uh, the square enix office for this yeah i was really surprised that Square of all companies would allow their crew to interview key members of the Final Fantasy XIV development team because Japanese mm-hmm. developers are usually very close to the chest and don't reveal a lot. So to have a Western documentary crew come in, interview them, and ask frank questions about the early days of fourteen, the failure of the initial launch, and then the comeback was a bit of a surprise to me. Yeah, exactly. So for those of you who have not heard, or for those of you who had not seen this yet, it is a three-part documentary. It's about two hours total uh, among all the sections. That's movie length for the most part. That talks about the 1.0 launch and the problems and issues they had with that initial release. They talk about bringing the team together under Naoki Yoshida um, for the for our Realm Reborn. And then they briefly discuss the end result, the initial reception for our Realm Reborn. And uh, like you said, Bill, like a lot of that first, that first episode is very much about how bad <laughs> that first game was. And it, it was, I completely agree, it was very surprising considering what we know about Square Enix and even what they say in the episode that, um, that they, they admit it. Yeah, and the reason behind the failure was interesting because it's a multitude of factors. Before Yoshida took over, it was led by the same team who created Final Fantasy XI. And I think it was a mixture of hubris where they thought, oh, well, we've done this before. We know how to do this. We're, we're also, we're square. We... We know what we're doing, so we don't need to question things. When uh, they haven't really experienced modern MMOs, like I think the shocking one shocking thing to me was that uh, Yoshida said that none of the original developers had ever played World of Warcraft. Which say what you want, say what you want about World of Warcraft, but World of Warcraft 
was a major influence on MMO design and how MMOs function because it was a major, it was a major leap from traditional MMOs like EverQuest. So for them to not play WoW at all and not even engaged with it was was a bit surprising. The other aspect that was surprising is that a lot of the groups were kind of in their own silos. I think one example was the main English translator talked about how a team would be working on the environments. Like, look at this lush grass. Grass, oh my god, it's amazing. But they wouldn't really communicate with other members of the team. And because there was not really any good communication amongst the different uh, members of the team that led to a very kind of disjointed experience. And didn't even come together in the engine. I think they had mentioned, if not in the documentary that had been mentioned elsewhere, that some of like the pots they had for plants um, around had more polygons and bigger textures than character models. So like there were certain flower pots that could crash the game. <laughs> yeah you, there was no singular vision it was just you know let's all kind of do our own thing this is it's just going to be another ff11 which is very popular um at the time but we can we, we if we put it out people will buy it was the assumption because of the final fantasy name and because of our prior experience with 11 people will just want to play it because people liked 11 right to go back to your point about the development, it's uh, you know FF11 was popular. It, it's if you try to go back and play it now, it is a, a, it, you, you're not going to do it unless you played it back in the day, unless you were already used to the intricacies and how sluggish so much of that gameplay is. You're not going to be able to play it with a sort of a modern perspective. I've looked into it a few times, thought you know what I should go back and try it, and every time I do, I instantly go nope. I'm good. <laughs> I'll just watch some videos. Uh, this seems like way too much work that I'm willing to put in for a bad experience. To be fair, like in the day, it was, it was, it was, it performed very well, and that really says more about what World of Warcraft did to change things. Like you mentioned, there were, you, we complained about it. It's become a joke, especially in the more recent years with Blizzard and some of their terrible practices. But WoW was groundbreaking and. There's there's really no way you can make an MMO RPG, even today, without trying to copy something that WoW has already did. And we look at 2.0, Realm Reborn. There's a lot of WoW isms that were not present in in Final Fantasy XI. It, it works out really well for for them to do so. I will say for Final Fantasy XI, I did look into XI, and I'm surprised they still get sporadic content updates. Mm-hmm. It's they still get a story development and a few updates. It's not as frequent as fourteen, but it's still going along. And there's, I'm assuming, there's enough of a player base that are into eleven, where it is still going, and they have not shut the servers down. Yeah, there was talk for a while of doing an offline version, maybe for mobile phones. I want to say that was 10 years ago that they were discussing that. But, you know, that kind of got scrapped after a time. It, it's interesting that you mentioned that because just this week, the longtime producer of Eleven stepped down finally. And 
we're kind of in a weird space where people are not sure how much they're going to do with with the game. There's a lot of talk about it going into maintenance mode finally, where they don't really add anything at all and just let the player base die off eventually. But, uh, you know, people have kind of hypothesized, why don't they just roll it as into the 14 expansion, a subscription? You know, why don't they just... Since it is still an active game, to play FF11, you need to subscribe to it still in the year of our Lord 2023 for, what, like 10, 12 bucks a month? <laughs> uh, people say, well, why don't you just bundle it as part of FF14, let those people try it and keep it alive, but they haven't. And there are people that are still on it. You know, you know it, it must make money because as we learned in today's economy, if something doesn't make money on the internet, it's going to be scrapped. Quick, quick sidebar. It, it would be funny if they did that because WoW has done something similar to that with WoW Classic, where you can play right. older versions like Vanilla WoW or Burning Legion WoW. So if they included FF11 as an add-on to your 14 subscription, it would, to me, feel like, oh, I get to play Vanilla WoW again, <laughs> in a way, because Final Fantasy XI is very much of its time when they made it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of people talk about doing private servers for Eleven, and that's something I I might try. Well, I would try if I were actually interested, but again, every time anybody shows me a clip of our actual gameplay, I lose all interest whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, it's funny you mentioned that the translator at the time, because he is still with um, Square. He's the lead localizing guy for 14, and he's the lead localizing guy for 16 as well. That's uh, hmm. Michael Christopher Koji Fox, a, a name well-known in the 14 community. So I would like to transition to at the point of the documentary where they realize that 14 is, a, is not going well. It is a failure, and we need to figure out how to respond to this failure. Because it was quite a surprise to me that just the time constraints they were under because they only had two years to fix the game where they had to patch the game that was currently out while on top of that make the new Realm Reborn version at the same time. And under two years so that way they could still have the game out for the PlayStation 3's life cycle. Yeah, exactly. Which is quite an astoundment to think about because I think in the interview when they interviewed Yoshida, they said at a minimum you need five years in, for MMO development. And to have that cut down severely and for them to accomplish it is quite an achievement. Absolutely. And that's we talk about Yoshi P a lot in the community. His main role has been producer. And honestly, his strength is planning. So back when they discerned they were going to do this, uh, he had a big spreadsheet where he like logged every person, what they were doing hour by hour, and completely logged everything that was going on. Uh, He mentions in the documentary that it was kind of a form of of Scrum, which itself is sort of an an agile um, sort of software development method. uh, Scrum and agile are terms that I've heard of, of course, working in an office, but something I have never had to personally interact with but it is pretty much a micromanaging system where even every day you look at what people are doing 
you keep people on track to what they should be doing that day, what they should be accomplishing, and having a team in full communication with one system, one central brain to make sure things are working. And he mentions the documentary. It's not something he would recommend and certainly not something that they do now, now that they are making new content. But for the time, they had to like let him micromanage the entire team to make sure it got out in the time frame they were given. Again, when we talk about Yoshi P as you know, the person that sort of made 14 what it is, and the person that is leading FF16 going forward, his strength is more so the planning than anything else. We could talk about the story, we can talk about the music, we can talk about the gameplay, but I feel like more people deserve recognition for those accomplishments, more so than just Yoshida. Because he is one part, and a central part, but not the only part. I would agree with you. I think the hard part is it's a marketing issue. Because he's the face of 14 and also 16 and it's easier marketing an individual than it is a team and also there's people on a team that don't want to engage with the press so it's hard for it's hard for fans when they're not told like oh this person did this this person did that they just group group all the stuff to that one person even if they didn't do that and, you know, hell, to go back to your the whole point of Square resting on its laurels, there's that's kind of the situation. Fans are fans of Square games. They know uh, Nobuo Matsu's soundtrack. They know a couple names they've heard over time. But we're in sort of a new era where we have Yoshida is, is sort of their golden child planner. We have Masayoshi Soken making, you know, sort of the new, the new soundtracks. And he's very different than Uematsu. And I think we're going to see him used a lot more in the future. Uh, Natsuko Ishikawa, the writer for Shadowbringers and Parts of Heavensward. I think we're going to see your name prop up a lot more as time goes on because this seems to be the new face of Square Enix in a way that we haven't had since the early days. I mean, people remember Tetsuya Nomura, but I mean, he's like, he was a character designer in the PlayStation era. And he's done stuff like Kingdom Hearts, but, you know, has he really contributed like a central Nomura vision since some of those early earlier games. I think that sort of that generation just kind of hanging around, honestly. So, mm. you know, I think we're, we're seeing a new, a new generation of developers at the company and sort of a new era of final fantasy as a whole. I'm very excited for it to see what 16 turns out in a few months and, you know, going forward, what other games are going to work. on. Yeah. I'm also glad that they, finally have some new voices in the room because for a while Square was very aimless of we don't know what we're really doing we don't feel that confident in what we're releasing so we're just going to do mobile ports and we're going to do mobile games and it's good to see that now that they seem to have at least a good crop of relative new people that they're willing to trust them and let them take on the reins of Final Fantasy and hopefully other projects. Well, I think if nothing else, you know, it's it's one thing to have a, a documentary on a video game in particular, but so much of the appeal of 14 is that story. And honestly, I think that's why Square agreed uh, to have New Clip come out and why they've been so vocal about their failures, because it makes for a good story. 
We, well, it's, uh, a, it's, we it's is, an, but it's amazing. It's a great marketing because everyone loves a everyone loves a comeback story. That's that's mm-hmm. a common trope in like your sports analogies of they're on the ropes. Can they come back? Oh, they come back with the one two punch. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that. That sort of narrative they have for 14 is something to be proud of, and it's great marketing. Um, but I also. I think wanna... of like this, and also, you know, you look at No Man's Sky, which came out a few years back. That kind of had a similar story where it came out, it did not live up to the hype. People were angry, there was much gnashing of teeth, and then slowly over time, they were able to rebuild their reputation by working directly. So we've kind of had this double-edged sword where it's it's easy to well not say it's easy but people love a comeback story but ultimately that comes on releasing a bad product to begin with. I do have to worry that more people are going to try this thing where they can push out a, a half-finished game, say oh no we're going to fix it, and then try to become the next Yoshida, you know, try to become the next No Man's Sky, you know, in the in the patches as it were. Well, I think that I think that's become this. This is more of a broader conversation about video game development, but I think that's <laughs> sadly become the a commonplace. Like Bethesda games are a prime example of that. Elder uh, Elder Scrolls Fallout, where they'll do mega patches before the game comes out, but they'll have to do even more patchwork after it's been released because of all the bugs reported in these massive open world games. We just saw that this year with the new Pokemon games. Yeah, a lot of a lot of talk about some of the online uh, issues people have had, the graphical issues caused by that, and it really feels to me like they're trying to reach for this same underdog story. They release a half-baked product, they eventually patch it out, they work with the fans to make you feel like they're your best friends, and then eventually people come around to it because they finally get what they requested and. You know that could that could work out for you, but it, if everyone's doing it, it kind of loses the appeal. One hundred percent agree on that. All right. Well, let's go ahead and take a quick break, and we will end our podcast talking about the finale of Alabasta. <laughs>
think we're back. So now that our main business is out of the way, let's go ahead and play catch up. So prior to this, uh, you had finished the uh, Realm Reborn patches, and I was only half done with the Alabasta Saga, where our characters had crossed into the Grand Line, had flitted around a couple islands, had met a lot of new friends, but finally had arrived on the continent of Alabasta. Ah, so let's see. What, 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 in the very beginning, we have so we we've introduced to Vivi, the ex Baroque Works agent that has been traveling with the Straw Hats to free her nation from Crocodile's influence. Um, let's see who else do we have? Oh yeah, so we 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 arrive on Alabasta, and one of the first things they they do in the city of Nanohana is accidentally run into Smoker. Of the Navy, as well as Luffy's older brother, Ace. So I could I could have swore back in the day that Ace and Luffy and Shanks were all related, but it turns out only Ace is Luffy's family so far, right? By bloodline, Ace and Luffy are brothers, but they're also uh, just brother. They're also brothers in arms too. It's not just right, for them. Right. Is for for them? It's not just blood related. Exactly. So the thing about Ace is that he is he's what a lieutenant of the the Whitebeard Pirates. Is that correct? Yeah, I would. He's kind of like a vice admiral of Whitebeard and Whitebeard. I don't know how much they've told you about him so far, but he's a very prominent pirate in the One Piece universe because he's one of the oldest pirates still going and he was a contemporary of goldie roger right he's 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 a one of the movers and shakers for for sure and they keep mentioning blackbeard as well is it was blackbeard under whitebeard or is it reverse blackbeard was part of uh whitebeard's crew okay but he shows up for a second pretty much leads uh smoker off the strawbeard, uh, strawbeard, the <laughs> straw hats trail, <laughs> uh, and we see Ace just completely annihilate a whole bunch of naval ships, just like in one one big fire attack. Yeah, his his devil fruit ability is very powerful because it's basically the fire fruit, <laughs> where he can do these massive fire attacks against his enemies. Uh, which you will see later on in the series. So after escaping Nanohana, they decide to uh, approach Crocodile's base of operations, his uh, rain base of operations, as you will. So they cross over to Yuba, which is now uh, like deserted. This, it, it was seemed to we sort of learn over time that. One of the main issues of Alabasta is that a thing called the dance powder, a, I guess, alchemical powder that causes rain to, to happen, was used, um, except uh, you know, when, when the rain happens, it takes the rain from the surrounding atmosphere, draining that area of its moisture. So a lot of Alabasta is now buried under sand because the dance powder has been overused. And uh, in particular, the use of the dance powder has been blamed on the king of Alabasta, uh, Vivi's, Vivi's father. Yes. And if I remember correctly, Crocodile is an advisor 
to the king. And he's seen as like a hero, at least on the outside, to the population of Alabasta. Right. So even though we know he's part of Baroque Works and orchestrating the entire issue, he's been revered as a hero. And he's sort of working behind the scenes to usurp uh, King Cobra of Alabasta. All right. Well, uh, the Straw Hats eventually do get to Rain Base and enter Crocodile's casino, Rain Dinners. <laughs> I noticed there's a there's a lot of um there's a lot of American or there's a lot of English loan words being used here, and so I looked them up to see if they were translated. No, they're just they're just the English. So I'm sure to a, a Japanese speaker, Rain Dinners sounds like a nice, you know, a fun name for a casino. This sounds kind of goofy to me, but what are, what are you going to do? Well, Japanese find that like singular English words are just cool. So they'll just have a shirt that has like an English word or two <laughs> words and they'll wear that. Like later on, I think certain members of the Stride crew wear these type of shirts. And I think it's just the Japanese thing where they just think English, certain English words together are just cool. Oh, yeah, it makes it feel international. When you're going to a casino, you know, on the Grand Line, away from everybody else, with a, with a name like Rain Dinners. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, the uh, the Strats break into Rain Dinners. It turns out that Crocodiles actually anticipated them. They have trapped them uh, in sort of the, the inner sanctum with a bunch of his sort of banana crocodiles. They all have, like, bananas on their head. I, to be honest, I don't remember that part. <laughs> you don't remember? So. Yeah. So he, he traps them, and he traps smokers there too. So he traps like all of all of the people in one fell swoop in sort of a cage, while the other uh, room is rapidly filling full of water and humongous crocodiles. It's very that's very on point for crocodile. <laughs> yeah, and while um our heroes are being trapped, he is enacting sort of the last. Last David's plan to take over. He has um, one of his other lieutenants, Mr. Two, uh, uh, brother number two, Mr. Bon Clay, who is a master of disguise, is going to be disguised as King Cobra and will sort of exacerbate a rebellion with the the people of Yuba. The ultimate goal for Crocodile is to create a civil war within Alabasta and within the chaos basically usurp the king and become the ultimate ruler of Alabasta is his ultimate is one of his ultimate goals there's one other goal we'll get to but that's near the very end exactly so he goes to enact that there's there's we start to see the beginning of his, his huge battle in Alabarna the capital of the country mm-hmm. between mm-hmm. these um, these this rebellion that has cropped up and the royal, the rather the loyalists, we see heroes from both sides. We see that in a flashback, one of Vivi's old friends from, from Yuba uh, is now an adult and very much ready to take power from the king just to help his people. We see mm-hmm. um, Pell, one of uh, the king's like I guess guard, personal guard, who's eaten the power he has the devil fruit power to turn into a bird. <laughs> There's actually a few devil fruit users here that transform into to animal people. 
And uh, yeah, so eventually I try out to do break out of the trap. It turns out that Mr. Three, the wax devil fruit user, uh, who had been betrayed by Crocodile, actually helps them escape with a wax key. <laughs> they, uh, they meet up with the rest, and I think that at one point uh, Luffy tries to fight Crocodile in their first showdown while the rest of the Strahouts run toward Alabarna. And what we discover is that Crocodile not only um, is a chain smoker, not only does he have a big hook on his right hand, he also has the power of sand, and he is he can sort of change his body into sand, so it's difficult to hit him, because he can just uh, take your hits. Yeah, and, a, Western, uh, a Western equivalent would be, he's basically the Sandman from Spider-Man. Exactly. Where he's yeah, impossible so. to, it's a, he's impossible to hit, and what makes that fight really fun is it's the first time Luffy faces adversary, adversary in a fight where he can't just punch mm. his way out of it and win. He has to actually go back and think about, okay, how am I able to fight Crocodile? Because his ability makes it very difficult for me to do, do my normal, just straight punch. So how do I approach this? Yeah, exactly. He's not able just to... To beat it with the sheer power of, sh- of shonen force. Uh, he <laughs> discovers a weakness in that moment. Or rather, he thinks he discovers a weakness in that moment. But while that is happening, we see back at the capital that the rest of the Straw Hats um, has sort of arranged a way to break in to the, the capital in the midst of the fighting. We see just like... <laughs> I, we see a thing that I'm sure will happen, continue to happen in One Piece where the individual straw hats are paired on a one versus one fight with a particular lieutenant. Sub-bosses. They have to, yeah, the sub-bosses, exactly. Where they have to determine a weakness and fight against that weakness. Uh, long story short, they all do in their own various ways. Eventually, Luffy shows up with a big barrel full of water. He's determined that, okay, well, if I make the sand wet... It turns into mud, and I can hit mud. So he drinks an entire bottle or an entire barrel, becomes water Luffy, which is just uh, Luffy with a big old belly full of water. <laughs> he basically becomes Flood from Super Mario Sunshine, where exactly. he has all this, all this water built up in his body, and it's just him just spurting the water out and trying to get it on Crocodile <laughs> so that way he becomes more solid and he's allowed, he's able to punch Crocodile. And after some fighting, he unfortunately still loses that fight. Not only can Crocodile make it difficult to hit him, he also can drain the moisture out of people, out of his enemies. So he starts to do that with Luffy, leaving him a dried-out husk on the ground while he takes... Um, this is all Sunday, another one of his sub-bosses to decipher a glyph hidden under, like, on the outskirts of the city. Uh, at the same time, the rest of the Straw Hats have to deal with a bomb. There has been a a bomb planted somewhere in the city amidst all the fighting that will eradicate everybody and one huge atrocity. So while Luffy he gets resuscitated goes to fight Crocodile and one last stand in the ruins. We have the rest of the group try to find the last set of lieutenants to disarm the bomb. 
And again, they do. Surprising, surprising nobody. <laughs> the heroes <laughs> save the day. In fact, uh, Pell, the, the Hawkman royal guard, takes this, this bomb, brings it up to the city, uh, above the city, like, you know, uh, in the sky. And as it explodes away from, from the, the people themselves, sacrifices himself to save everyone in a very touching moment. Uh, which is, you know, he doesn't actually die somehow at the end. So whatever. It's cool. He can live, I guess. <laughs> and we see one final showdown with a crocodile. It turns out that Missile Sunday, his translator, didn't discover any hint of the, uh, what is it? What is it called? The pl- 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 plutonium? Pluton? Yeah, he was basically, the, they found out that the, the poneglyph that was, outside the city it's basically just the recipe for this ultimate weapon and i Mm. think and she is disappointed because that is not her goal and that's why she teamed up with crocodile because she's looking for something else in particular but he wants to use this weapon that is supposedly transcribed on the poneglyph and i think it might be but ultimately she tells him that it's not that it's just basic history stuff yeah, he um, uh, she dis- she deceives him at the very end because uh, Luffy's very charming, and I remember they have like some dialogue between the two of them in the temple or in that temple area beforehand, which kind of leads her to deceive Crocodile. Yep. So he tries to backstop her at the last possible minute before Luffy shows up, and they engage in one last struggle. Uh, in the, the underground area while well, everything comes to a head and one one big one uh, I guess one one explosive finale mm. the the aftermath of everything uh, crocodile is defeated alabasta is saved from the civil war people have realized they've been betrayed by crocodile and mr. Bon clay at the end of at the end of it all and it's sort of come together as one um, Alabasta Nation. So, in the sort of the final chapter, we see the Straw Hats recover in Alabarna. We see a big ceremony for Vivi, and the rain comes back to the region after Crocodile is defeated. They finally get the much-needed rain that they asked for, if I remember correctly. Right. Not able and, to use the dance powder any longer. Right, and. Smoker gives a hint of his ultimate goal because I don't think you've mentioned this, but Crocodile is a member of the Seven Warlords. That's right, yeah. And one of Smoker's goals is he wants the Seven Warlord system to be demolished because the Seven Warlords are very powerful pirates that work for the world government. And basically it's an agreement with the world government that says we will give you this title if you come at our beck and call when we need you for whatever event we will basically leave you alone and not arrest you and certain members of the world government which you'll meet later are not huge fans of that system like Smoker and so Smoker gets a bit of what he wanted and because of this, Luffy's notoriety and the Straw Hat's notoriety goes up in the 
in the overall world where his bounty gets increased because of it. Yeah, I think um, Luffy's does, and I think Zoro gets a bounty on his head now as well. One of the big final moments of that arc is Vivi has been with the Straw Hats for a long time, and so now she has to decide whether she stays in her home country and helps kind of rebuild it, or does she go along with the Straw Hats as they continue their journey to find One Piece. And so there's a bit of conflict of, what's Vivi going to do? And she's worried if she doesn't go with them that they'll no longer be friends because in the grand scheme of things, people of notoriety, of royalty, and of governments aren't supposed to be friends with pirates. But at the very end, she decides, I'm going to stay in Alabasha and help my people recover. And she says goodbye to the Straw Hats. As they leave, they put their hand, they put their arms up, showing the X mark on their arm that shows is a symbol of their friendship, and they will always be friends with Vivi. Yeah, it's a very touching, simple moment. We didn't really bring up the X marks, but when they discovered that Bon Clay was a master of disguise, they all tattooed an X mark on their wrist and covered it up so that if there was an issue and they weren't sure if somebody was legit, they would show that X mark, something that Von Clay would not have, as a showcase that they were together. And to sort of reuse that symbol at the end, a very simple thing to just say, well, we all have it, so we're all together. Even though Vivi can't be a pirate, that's not her destiny in life, she's still part of that crew, part of that friendship. Mm. Even even Karu, her her pet duck, Chocobo thing, has it. summary um one thing i guess there's plenty of discussion one thing i want to bring up is boy a lot happened during alabasta (laughs) (laughs) that that was only the half that we talked about like not not even considering you know the drum kingdom or the the giant island or whiskey peak like man this is so much longer than east blue yeah you're now entering modern one piece where arcs are very very long congratulations tobias welcome to modern day Woo! Uh, wow <laughs> uh, a lot a lot happened and a lot happens you, know, you think they finally get to, to alabasta that it would be in the last section but no it goes on for another whole half of a saga as they go to city to city there are talks of various plans happening we finally and have the- a showdown against crocodile but no wait that's only a taste because there's another showdown against Crocodile and there's right. a whole other bomb in the city and a sniper they have to find. 
Right. Or, hey, we're going to meet these side characters like the old man in the well. And he tells them about the rain situation in Alabasta and his frustrations with it. Or, hey, we're going to run into Ace and explain who Ace is. So there's a lot going into One Piece. And I think for some people that can be a turnoff. I love it because it just shows that this isn't just a simple world. It's a very, it's a big world with a lot of characters going on and a lot of things going on in the background. Yeah, when I think of the individual elements, I appreciate them. I like I you talk mentioned the old man in the well in uh, in the city Yuba. I think he the way he sort of comes back into the story over time is interesting and it's very touching to see mm-hmm. that element get brought up. But boy, there's sure a lot of them. <laughs> it makes yeah, me think uh, of uh, like One Piece is like Columbo. One more thing. Oh, yeah. One more thing. One more <laughs> thing before we end the Alabasta saga. There's one more complication. One more fight we have to do. It's, you know, I, there's a lot that's great, but also sometimes it's like, let's get to the final fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I want to get to Sky Island already. Come on. <laughs> Bill's waiting on me to finish the saga. I can't keep. <laughs> I can't keep no, going. no, I'm not waiting. Just you, you take your time because I want you to enjoy everything that you're interested in. But yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot to go. On. There's a lot of stuff that we didn't even breach in the summary, like the struggle Vivi oh, yeah. has, like during the, the Civil War portion, where there's a sequence where she's like, "Well, I'm royalty and I'm very well known, so I'm going to try and reach out to the people and use my voice." And try and get them to stop. And just her struggle. Just screaming at the top of her lungs to get attention. And it's just going nowhere in the major city. And just the anxiety she's feeling is. She feels her country is being torn apart. By Crocodile and his plans. At the same time. Just those kind of character moments too. Within One Piece are great. It, It does make me. You've told me a lot that people rarely die in One Piece. You've told me to look for a body, but when we see Pell, the Hawkman, get completely obliterated by this like nuke that that they found, but he shows up at the end. Well, I thought you said. <laughs> well, I, I I'm I'm learning from you too that sometimes that rule doesn't apply. There's a when, in our in our in our next. In our next episode, whenever we get to uh, certain story stuff in 14, that, that rule also got broken to my frustration. And sometimes <laughs> the, the, the rule slash law gets broken and we just don't have to like it. <laughs> well, it's one of the situations where I think I like it. It was, it was kind of a bit of a dramatic moment. I, I'm interested to see what, what, when we see the Alabastans come back again, because you mentioned before that people come back and we see the world grow over time. Now I know there's a time skip at some point, so I'm really interested to see when we see Vivi again, when we see Karu, my favorite character again, <laughs> and how these characters have changed. So with whatever happens I, during the time skip. I, I have a few Alabasta questions for you. Okay. What did you think of Crocodile as a villain? Because for a lot of One Piece fans, he's one of the more memorable villains that people really like. 
You know, I I think I've got this problem with a lot of One Piece characters, villains specifically, where they are definitely badass, but they also just seem a little, I don't know, just there. I appreciate the crocodile schemes. I think it's kind of interesting and the way that he's thought out all these these angles. I think that the way he's sort of plotted Alabasta against itself is very good. As a character, eh, he's just like the guy from the um, Barati arc. He's just a big guy. He's a big guy. He's really strong. He's got metal on his arm. Um, he has a devil user power, a devil fruit power, because of course he does, because everyone has a devil fruit power. <laughs> <laughs> there are parts I liked, but I think honestly, at the end of the day, I think I liked Baroque Works as an institution more than I cared for Crocodile as an individual. Mm. I think the sort of super agent, or rather secret agent sort of aesthetic behind their Baroque Works the way they had code names was very interesting. I thought their individual powers was kind of neat. But when it comes down to it, like the, fi- the final battle, I know people talk about it, but like, eh, it's just Luffy. Luffy does eventually just beat Crocodile really hard, even though he uses he uses his blood as, in place of water to actually hit Crocodile. And I think, if I'm being honest, I think that fight with Crocodile was probably the weakest part of that entire fight. I much more enjoyed BB coming to terms with the way her country was. I enjoyed the way they had to track down the bomb and the sniper and the, the clock tower. Mm-hmm. And the way they had to use all their powers together. We, I, I, I kind of like glossed over all the individual sub-boss fights. So there's a point where there's there's... What, two agents? There's one that uses a, a baseball bat, right? And is like uh, knocking out, like using a bat to hit bombs at, I want to say Chopper and Usopp, right? That was his power. It wasn't was in, like a, at, it was an older lady, like a, uh, like an older lady she, type figure. Yeah, she, she was a mole. She was a mole and she was making holes and she was paired with the other guy who had a dog that shot the bombs, like the dog was a missile launcher, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> a grenade launcher. And like right. he was using the, the baseball bat to like hit the, the grenades at the party to great effect. Eventually they found that they could just trick the dog into using the holes to attack his allies. We had the fight with um Bon Clay and Sanji. That was a that was one fight as well. Bon Clay using his disguise powers to turn into Nami and Vivi and of course Sanji <laughs> cannot hit a woman so he, there, yeah. that was his struggle there people like Bon Clay a lot because he's a very eccentric character and he's a, he has yeah. a lot of personality yeah I completely agree I think um, they kind of at the end Bon Clay actually helps them escape from the navy that has come to Alabasta to, to, to take the straw hats and mm-hmm. Bon Clay is convinced he's a friend of the crew, even though he's working against them for most of the, the arc. I, I hope he comes back again. Well, because they have that bit at the beginning where they meet him, where yeah. at first he just explains his powers outright to them. <laughs> and they just have a fun, kind of goofy interaction with each other where they're not <laughs> enemies yet. 
and that was that was fun. But again, yeah, kind I... of kind of kind of what you're saying about the sub bosses. I always enjoy the sub bosses fights because while they can go a little long, it reminds me kind of of JoJo, where everyone has a unique ability. And you have to figure out, okay, well, how do they get around this ability and how do they fight it? It's a bit of a puzzle. So how do I solve the puzzle? Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's, that's the thing that I think I appreciate most about One Piece is for the most part, you can't just, you're not, you're not messing with power levels. You're not out power leveling your opponent. The solutions are using their power against them. And in almost every fight I've seen so far, it's come down to that. Uh, the other one that I think was really interesting was uh, Nami's fight. Um, the sub boss she fought could harden her body as spikes, and it was Nami had got a new weapon. The was it the tempo? The it wasn't a, a staff, right? The the yeah, it's a staff that Usopp creates for Nami that allows her to do sort of Usopp like tricks with the staff, if I remember correctly. Hopefully I'm right about that. <laughs> I want to look up the name, because it's got a, a, a particular name. Something Tempo. Google says it's Climb Attacked, but that's the upgraded version. Yeah, that's that's later. <laughs> but Yeah, but during that one, we discover her new weapon that is not made for a new sort of um, uh, staff. And... He, I guess he made it to do party tricks because it's all really right. It's all sort of kind of comedic. It's comedic in tone because that's what Usopp is as a character. Is he's very comedic. Yeah. So she's going through half the fight trying to work out the instructions for this new stuff, and nothing's really working out. It's it's kind of a, it comes down to using making weather effects, maybe getting sort of the air filtering through the stuff to cause rain or like warm weather fronts it's mostly useless but she sort of figures out a way figures out a way to use those effects in the atmosphere to defeat her sub boss Mm. and lastly we see um zoro he goes against number one the one lieutenant who can turn his body into like metal into swords and he has to go back to his swords training to remember a lesson from his mentor a, sword, a swordsman can choose what to cut and what not to cut. And sort of coming to terms with somebody that's stronger than him. Again, we kind of see this already in the fight against Mihawk, where it's mm-hmm. really Zoro having to sort of level up and reach a new sort of zen, a level of awareness. But the way they, right. they frame it here, I thought was really interesting. The way that he has to, he has to choose when to cut and when not to cut. And that's how he wins that fight. yeah like again I feel like these fights are very clever puzzle pieces where each of the members have to find their own way they can't just brute force it it's not I'm not saying this is bad but it's it's not a Dragon Ball fight where I'm power level 9000 you're power several level 7000 ah ha 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 it's more in the vein of the JoJo influence of 
all the fights are puzzle pieces and everyone has a unique ability or effect and you have to deal with it. And some of those fights are really memorable. Like for me, the, the Zoro, probably the Zoro fight is memorable because of the, um, just how, I guess, cool it is. If I, if I remember just him trying to figure out a way to get past this guy, who's basically made of steel. How do you get through that? Or the Usopp's, uh, chopper fight where it's basically whack-a-mole. I remember in the anime <laughs> adaptation, yeah. just well, how do how do they beat the how do they beat this because they're they're going all across the desert. They're not in one particular place, and they're able to quickly move around the board very quickly. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Maybe Micah played against the crocodile fight is that I'm I'm generally more interested in all of these weirdo sub bosses and the individual straw hats methods to, to fight them then i am against luffy's big fight because it's it's I, i'm look, kind of mm-hmm. thinking back now and i think that in arlong he used the swords or he's sorry he used the shark teeth on his fist to win you know he uses his gum gum powers occasionally but it, it really comes down to luffy just beating the heck out of the opponent while shouting freedom and this is you know what being a pirate <laughs> means to me it's, and that's kind of what happens with the crocodile. I feel like maybe I'm misremembering. Maybe uh, maybe I'm missing something. It has been a bit since I did finish Alabasta, so maybe I'm just I'm forgetting something. I will say in Crocodile's defense, like some characters, people like them just because they look cool. They have a really cool design, or they just have a badass attitude. And Fist of the North Star is a big influence on <laughs> One Piece. And a lot of Fist of the North Star characters are just, like, really cool character design. I'm a badass. Come fight me. And I think some of those characters, especially Crocodile and another one you'll get to way down the road, is very much influenced by Fist of the North Star. Yeah, he just seems like a big, badass kind of villain. I don't know. I just I don't find that as interesting. I think Buggy... <laughs> was neat because he's a silly clown and because his power was very weird his ability to separate his body just a very notable weird power right uh, arlong was very similar to crocodile but he's a big shark man he's a big fish man i think that made him just the very fact that first of all fishmen were billed as super super superman in the series but also he's a big shark and that, that strikes me as more interesting than what we have a crocodile maybe what also helped with shanks is his his central story with Nami and how he's the core problem for Nami and yeah. the, and he's such a vital part of her backstory and because of that that made him more interesting to you yeah and to sort of key off that with Alabasta I found uh, Vivi to be a very interesting character I literally liked Vivi at the end of all this even though she's just a blue haired Nami <laughs> at least at the beginning <laughs> Uh, the way that she really cared a lot about her country, the way we see her connect with a lot of the people over time in Alabasta, mm-hmm. I found that to be very interesting. So, of course, you can't have that without Crocodile. So maybe that maybe that's part of it. You know, we have to consider his scheming and his desire to take over politically as part of that struggle as well. You know what's funny is I really like Vivi as a character. 
But throughout the anime, she's always hyperventilating and really having high anxiety attacks over Crocodile. And I don't know how that translated how that translates in the manga. But in the anime, she's either in like two modes where she's either very <laughs> calm and very caring to the people of Alabasta and the people around her, or she seems to be in a very scared fight or flight response to what's happening around her. And I don't blame the characterization for that because based off the backstory, if she had been living in Alabasta for years under the rule of Crocodile and she learned what Crocodile was doing and just knew of how powerful he was, I would be scared out of my mind too, hyperventilating and getting super scared. That said, that's a common... That that was a common theme for her. And it reminded me very much of Nami's thing of dealing with some sort of trauma and then trying to over overcome it. Yeah, that's very true. I We do see a lot of that in the manga. It, um, I think it flowed... Based on what you're telling me, it seems like it might have flowed better in the manga just because we can see those panels and quickly get over them. But now that you say it, yeah, she was... She had a lot of anxiety about her country and both getting there and solving it, but also seeing like her father for the first time in a while, and seeing mm. uh, seeing him nearly. I think he, she. I don't think he died. He doesn't die at the end of this, does he? King Cobra's no. still around. No, no, he's still the king when they leave Alabasta. I think he's. They're just afraid that he gets injured, or exactly. afraid that he. And so just her ultimate fear of like losing her father and then the ultimate fear of Crocodile in the background. So I think when she first meets him in person, it's almost like meeting the person that caused you the trauma up in front okay. without any without any sort of preparation or warning. So. But the last thing I want to mention with Alabasta is that I like the general aesthetic. Um, in East Blue, it was just pirates all the way down. Of course, this is a pirate series. And we do get a bit of um, taste of places in the islands leading up to Alabasta. But here we very much have a sort of Middle East Arabic aesthetic. Like the, with the clothes they're wearing, the architecture mm-hmm. of the place. It, it does feel like they're going for a very particular aesthetic. Everything in this arc, at least even the second half of the arc that I thought was really interesting. The, the clothes that they, they give everyone, the costumes, uh, like I said, the architecture, everything felt uh, like it was styled for this particular place, which I, I really liked. And I really hope that as One Piece continues, that rather than just see more pirate pirate stuff, more generic, you know, eye patches and hats and that kind of thing, uh, we see places and people styled toward cultures. Mm. Well, I have one final question for you. So I think you, because you said you're in the midst of Skypea, so this has already happened. But as they are leaving Alabasta, we learn that they have a stowaway. Oh, that's this, right, yeah. This, this All Sunday, a.k.a. Nika Robin, and she says, I've decided I'm going to just join you guys for a while. And Luffy just goes, okay. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool with me. Yeah. 
Yeah, so even even though Vivi couldn't show up, we do still get a new a new friend in the friend group with Nico Robin. And she's also as a Devil Fruit user. Big shock there. Uh, her power is that she can I guess sprout various limbs on other people. So like yeah, she, she is sprout she arms. She is a she's a very powerful devil fruit where she's able to to basically spore body parts and extend her um, arms and legs to any part. So it's if to use a superhero connection, it's a bit like Mr. Fantastic's power, but it can go much further. So it is a very powerful devil fruit power. Yeah, and she she knows how to use it for sure. There's a part where you know a lot of these limbs can sprout on other people, so she's able to grapple other people within range. You know, she's mm-hmm. able to pin them down, grapple them. There's a point I, I remember a panel. I can't remember exactly where it is, but where she takes a sword and holds somebody's sword at their own throat while holding them back from stopping from stopping her. I feel like so far she's the maybe she's fighting Zoro for the coolest member of the Straw Hats. She's got a <laughs> a very sharp character design. Like Nami has a lot more rounded features. It is more like she's sort of more relatable, I guess. Nico Robin feels more like the cool the cool girl of the crew. Um, she's like I said, these are the explorer, um, adventurer type of person. I think she's uh, she's going along to explore some of the ruins. That's kind of her area of expertise. Yeah, she's got a mysterious her... background, so we don't know exactly what's going on with her yet. Lending to her coolness. Mm. Yeah, she's got uh, this straight black hair. It's like you know, contrast with Nami and even Vivi's lighter hair color. So she's she really strikes me as the cool member of the crew more so than mm. any other than Zoro. And even Zoro is kind of a goofball in a ways that Robin is not. So I don't think this is a major spoiler, but she is a she's very much a scholar. Where one reason she teamed up with Crocodile is she wanted to also study the poneglyphs that were in Alabasha and learn about them because that's one thing of of hers is learning the knowledge of these poneglyphs, these ancient writings that no one knows how to translate. They will. The Poneglyphs become a big part of the One Piece storyline, but that okay. will be that will be another day. And I will also say, as probably you can cut this out, Tobias, probably as a as a uh, exclusive. But Robin, Nico Robin, is the Bill Foreman best girl of One Piece. <laughs> shocked, shocked. Because <laughs> I'm also shocked that you think I'm going to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> she is she is the best girl whenever you watch the anime adaptation she has the best voice it's great <laughs> so I really enjoy Nuka Robin her backstory is one of my favorite parts about One Piece and I will be excited to whenever you get to that
we'll have to see how that lands out. Like all the other people have, we've got glimpses in their back backstory, which makes them more relatable. But so far, that really hasn't happened with Nigarava. Same way. I'm sure. I'm sure that'll happen eventually. We'll get more bits of story. But so far, she's just been kind of the badass. Mm-hmm. And now we should tease where you're at. Now you're in Skypia. Sky yeah, so I went ahead and read the Skyland Saga. I'm a little more than halfway through at this point, and you know I, I, I'm digging it so far. I don't want to go in too much because that'll be next next discussion. There are parts that I I don't love, parts that I really have enjoyed so far. This is a light East Blue is a little bit on the shorter side comparatively. Uh, mm-hmm. So I will have to get ready for. I believe the one after that is Water Seven, correct? Correct. Water 7 is pretty long. Seven whole waters, huh? <laughs> no clue what that means, but I guess I'll find out once I get there. Alright, well let's go ahead and talk about uh, that. So, uh, you may have noticed that this episode is coming out a little later in the year compared to our last episode. We did have a few commitments already with the main podcast, which led to that the the beginning of the year. But unfortunately, we've had a couple of delays. I don't want to make an excuse for that. It is what it is. But we have had, uh, Bill has had, um, I don't know, do you do you want to go into that? I don't know how much comfortable you're with sharing with the audience. I injured a finger, and that injury basically sidelined me for playing 14 for a while. Uh, the finger is better, and I'm able to play 14 again. Hooray. But that delayed us for a while because I couldn't really make any progress. That and on my end, it's just been kind of busy with work and, and various stuff. So we haven't really been on the ball as much as we should. Regardless, whatever. We're going to brush brush right on past that. However, we have hit a, a point where just as of last night, Bill has completed 3.0, the first credits on Heaven's Red. And even though we discovered that he can continue throughout the 3.x patches we are getting really close to the end of the free trial which would put uh, our current paradigm on a bit of a standstill now on the one hand i think that'll be a little fine because i do tend to take more time reading than you do playing (laughs) to your your chagrin even with your injury uh i'm now currently behind since i'm still in skypea and you're beaten 3.0 so in a period of like two weeks, you beat me. You lapped me. A tortoise in the hare situation over here. And uh, well, so I think I, th- I think part of that's my fault because I get a, I get get very singular focused on a particular <laughs> task, and I'm not good at multitasking, folks. I'm I'm really good at focusing on a particular task when it comes to my entertainment and doing that and. And after a while, uh, I was playing another game, and then Tobias and Basil were saying, Bill, get back to 14. Come on. Let's do it. Fingers better. Yeah, fingers better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, fingers better. Get back to it. And I said, okay. And I don't multitask. And because of that, I focused on the 14 Heavensward expansion, which we will do in a future episode, uh, or talk about in a future episode. And, but because of my single-minded nature, I've sped through that expansion rather quickly, 
And so we are going to change the format a bit to give us a bit more breathing room and I think allow each uh, portion of our premise to, uh, to shine. Which is to say that we're not really going to have a dedicated format going forward. I think we both decided that we are going to continue on this journey uh, going forward. There's no need to match up one-to-one with an experience. I thank God because I know that Water 7 is the longest saga so far. <laughs> and that's, that's coming up next for me. So in the future, we're just going to release these episodes as we get to parts. We'll probably do one just on 3.0 uh, Heavensward. I know Bill wants to eventually do one on the Gold Saucer. If we can find other documentaries or video series on 14, that'll be content for that side. On my side, uh, there's just a ton more manga to go. Uh, I'm, I've only put a drop in the bucket of One Piece, so there's no end to that. You did mention that they have an Alabasta compilation movie. We'll check out uh, at some point as well. It might be its own episode. And there's just various sort of one-shot sort of deals that we can cover. So uh, again, this I guess this announcement is more so than anything else. We're not going to be doing a one-to-one reading going forward. This may allow us to put out shorter episodes that are a little more focused that also come out uh, with more regular pacing than our current output. And yeah, this will allow us to be more free form with what we do overall. Mm-hmm. So if I, any of our audience members, if you have any ideas for certain things we could do, if there's a certain, like I said, a certain maybe video series that you would want us to watch to investigate any particular fan work that you think would work for this podcast, feel free to send that along and we can check that out. And where can they send us that bias? In what way? So we have, um, well, there's a couple ways to reach out to us. The main thing, if you wanted to contact us directly, we have set up an email inbox that is, let me check it out because it's been so long since I've, uh, (laughs) uh, I want to make sure I get it correct. Okay, so our email address is a grand line reborn at gmail.com. That is all one word, a grand line reborn at gmail.com. So far, we've only had one email submission from the last episode, so by all means, feel free to send us some more, whether it's a suggestion, uh, words of appreciation, any complaints. We will read that, or probably will read that, depending on the content. Uh, on the podcast and respond to that here. Uh, You can also find our website for the main podcast at thirdimpactanime.com. I believe Austin has also set up a particular landing page for Grand Line Reborn as well. So you should be able to go straight to that from the main title bar at the top of the website to find those posts in particular. Uh, as for us individually, um, I'm no longer on social media as of this point. You can mainly find me on the Third Impact Anime Discord, which we will have a link to in our show notes. We have a channel specifically for this sub-podcast in the channel list. You want to follow along in a more regular manner. Uh, Bill, are you still on the, doing the Twitter thing? I'm still on the Twitter, but based off how things are going, I probably will be leaving soon. <laughs> uh, based off uh, based off the latest 
uh, grand plans by Mr. Musk. So yeah. if 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 to not go into that tangent, you can find <laughs> you you can also find me in the Third Impact Anime Discord, where I'm usually spamming the Grand Line Reborn with pictures of and my reactions to events. Uh, warning: There's uh, spoilers throughout, so if you are playing through Heaven's Sword or play through the base game, there are spoilers in there. But it's I'm having fun posting my reactions and my freakouts to certain story moments that I I just go, what what happened? What's going on? And as a general reminder, that place is uh, only we only worry about spoilers up until the point that we're at. So, spoiler tag, anything that is beyond the current segments in our review series, anything before them, we don't put spoilers down. So, uh, we will. you'll see stuff for Heavensward, you'll see stuff for Skypia. Again, if that's a concern for you, you'll need to either catch up or, you know, go to our MAGA section or our General Purpose 14 channel. Be aware of that, because there's, there's stuff being shared that could spoil you, even though we're, what, you're like five years behind the current uh, 14 and I'm something like 10 years behind the current one piece. <laughs> <laughs> more, more like probably like 15 probably. <laughs> yeah. So even though we're far behind, just in case you're sort of following this, these, both of these series with us, be aware, be a little careful if you go in there, if you're not caught up to where we're at currently. All right, Bill. Well, anything else you want to discuss on the podcast before we wrap it up today? I'm just glad we're back. Glad you're. I haven't. Uh, I haven't gotten you away from One Piece. You're still, still <laughs> enjoying it. So I, I feel like my mission's accomplished, and so I'm <laughs> happy to uh, continue on my 14 journey. Absolutely glad your hand is feeling a lot better and. Glad to see us continue as well. All right, Bill. Well, as usual, till sea swallows all, set sail for One Piece. Yahoo!